Good morning. We are continuing uh, through the book of Acts, and today we are reading from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through to 35. Uh, please follow along in your Bibles, on your devices, or on the screen behind me. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying here. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, <clears throat> We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that you could hear what you, so he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. 
I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house, in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is God's word. Uh, good morning, folks. It's uh, nice to be with you. My name's Mark. Welcome to church this morning. Um, two quick things before I begin. Number one, uh, don't forget that there are series handbooks out in the foyer on that little shelf. If you've got one of those orange handbooks, can you stick it in the air and wave it around? I want you to be honoured. On, uh, we honour you. Well done, folks. Uh, there's plenty more on the shelf over there. If you want one where you can take space, uh, there's space for sermon notes. Uh, there's the uh, home group study questions. You can just help yourself to one over there, $2 donation. That'd be really helpful. Second quick thing is just a little update. Some of you will have heard uh, the news uh, about Faye Robertson's memorial service. The date's been set for a week tomorrow. So Monday, the 21st of August here at WBC at 11 a.m., if you knew Faye and John and the family, uh, please do come along 11 a.m. Monday the 21st for her memorial service. Uh, we'd be glad to have you there. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word, and then we will think about uh, Acts chapter 10 together. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, uh, thank you for the encouragement that we've already received this morning and for the reminders of your goodness to us in Jesus. Father, would you please help us now as we read and consider your words and think about this story that comes from a context and a culture that is so far from where we are now. Help us to make sense of what we're reading and to understand what it is that you want to say to us this morning. We do pray that you please give us faith to believe and to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, whatever progress uh, we have made as a society in the areas of human rights and, you know, multiculturalism, things like that, and we have made good progress as a society, I think you would have to say that favouritism and prejudice are still alive and well in Australian society. There was a, a Princeton University study a few years ago that showed that tall people earn, on average, 10% more than people who are four inches shorter than them. And that's some good news for some people, I guess, uh, not for me. Uh, in Britain... A study concluded that the chances of you reaching a director's boardroom are increased by 3% if a man is 6 foot 2 rather than 5 foot 10. Sociologists have known about something for a long time that they call the halo effect, where uh, physically attractive people are assumed to be better socially and to have a higher intelligence. Uh, and an Australian study here at home found that children from certain racial minorities 
actually face lower teacher expectations in the classroom. Favoritism and prejudice are alive and well in the world around us. But to be honest, we don't need academic studies and proof that that exists, right? We can just look at our own experiences and our own hearts to know that that's the case. We know that we've got those tendencies towards favoritism and prejudice within ourselves, don't we? When somebody walks past you in a split second, you make assumptions about them. We all do. We assess someone, we categorise them, we figure out where they fit in, and then uh, we can deal with that person appropriately. Think about getting on a train as you scan the carriage and think about where you're going to sit. You're trying to decide what type of person it is you're willing to sit next to and which type of people you'd be willing to walk a little bit further to find a seat away from. There is no doubt that there are some people here in our church who've been mistreated as a result of prejudice and favouritism in other people. Perhaps simply being rejected because you belong to a particular category of which you have no control. I've been made aware recently of some friends of mine who have been feeling the effects of ageism. Uh, experienced workers who are getting knocked back job after job simply because of their age. And of course, there's the lingering presence of racism in Australian society, which I'm sure that there are many in our church who have felt the sting and the effect of. Prejudice and racism and favouritism are alive and well, but not with God. This chapter that we're looking at today, Acts chapter 10, says to us that the good news of Jesus dismantles all favouritism and prejudice. The key verse of this chapter, if you want to sort of take in one key verse and tune out the rest, that's okay. The key verse is verse 34 and 35. It says this, as Peter begins to speak to Cornelius in his house, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That is what this whole chapter is here to teach us. I'm telling you now, that's our big idea. God does not show favouritism. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and come to grips with that reality. We're going to look through this story and then we're going to think about what it means for us, what it means for the way we, we view God, the way we view ourselves, the way we view other people. That's our task this morning. Now, as we do come to Acts chapter 10, remember where we are at this point in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus has set the roadmap for the book all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, where he tells his followers to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then eventually even further. And here, uh, as we come to the end of Acts chapter 9, we've actually seen that happening. We've seen the gospel message bringing salvation first to people in Jerusalem, then to people more broadly in Judea, then even to the Samaritans. And now as we come to chapter 10, we are at the start of that last part of Jesus' mission, the ends of the earth. We're starting to see the nations receive the gospel, non-Jewish people coming into the kingdom. That's what is happening in chapter 10. And as we start this story, we're introduced right off the bat to a guy named Cornelius, and he's in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea, as the name suggests, is Caesar's area. It is the Roman capital of the Judean province. It's where the, Rome, uh, the Roman governors were based, where they ruled from. It was a city where there were more Gentiles than Jews. And Cornelius, we're told, he's a centurion. So that means he's a Roman soldier and he's in charge of a 100 men, century of men. 
And as you know, the Jewish and Roman people didn't have a particularly friendly relationship of the time. Uh, the Jewish people didn't like being under Roman rule. And so ordinarily, this guy, Cornelius the Centurion, in Caesar's area, he would not be winning any popularity contests in Israel. However, verse 2, this is, this is not your average pagan. Verse 2, we're told that he is devout and God-fearing. That means he knew about God and he respected God the God of Israel somehow. Somehow he'd heard stories about Yahweh. And whilst he hadn't gone all the way to fully becoming Jewish, he was living a life where he was trying to please God. He gave generously to those in need. He prayed to God regularly, right? Very unusual character, this Cornelius. And we read that God sends an angel to give Cornelius a message. We'll pick it up from verse 4. The angel says to Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, small detail here, but good thing for you to know. In the book of Acts, pretty much any time geography is mentioned, it has some significance. And that's certainly true in this story here. Did you pick up on the detail? The angel says that Simon Peter is staying in Joppa. Now, you might think, so what? Like, we don't even know where Joppa is. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, if, you, if you're someone who knows your Bible quite well, then you may remember that many centuries earlier, God had sent one of his prophets from his people to preach the good news to a bunch of pagans in a city called Nineveh and to call them to repent and to turn back to God. But the prophet, Jonah, he was so appalled at the thought of these wicked pagans being welcomed into God's family that he got on a ship to head in the opposite direction. And do you remember the name of the port where he got on that ship? It was Joppa. And so Luke's mention of Joppa here, it introduces attention into the story. Because as we read about Cornelius's men making their way down the coast to meet Peter in Joppa, we're supposed to be wondering at this point, well, I, I wonder how this Jewish prophet, this mouthpiece of God, is going to respond to the call to take God's salvation to that pagan guy, Cornelius. And you don't have to wait long to find out, do you? Because the next day, we're told, verse 9, Peter's on the roof praying. So read from verse 10 with me. Peter became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, what is it that he dreams about? Well, unsurprisingly, this hungry guy dreams about food. You know, we've all been there. This isn't, though, this isn't just some hunger-induced daydream. Now, this is actually a vision that's given to him by Almighty God. Verse 11, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Now, the concept of a, a sheet being lowered down from heaven is, well, essentially here is good stuff coming from God. Here is food with God's approval of it. And so Peter is probably licking his lips at this point, thinking, what's, what's he going to get? A meal from heaven, what's it going to be? And as he peers over into the sheet and sees what's being offered, look at verse 12. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Now, some of you may hear that and you might think, great, tuck in, Peter. That sounds awesome. Bit of a barbecue, bit of pork, bit of crocodile steak maybe. That'll be great. But for Peter, alarm bells are ringing. 
Because these are the exact sort of animals that he was forbidden from eating as a Jewish man. You can read those Old Testament food laws that no doubt you've heard about. If you go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 11 and read about all these kinds of foods that God says are not kosher. Jews were not to eat this. But here in the vision, God says to Peter, verse 13, get up, kill and eat. And you can kind of tell that Peter's mind is being blown by this instruction from God. Look at verse 14. Peter says, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And that kind of denial and representation of the food, it goes on three times. Every time Peter is like, no way, I'm not eating it. I've ne- I'm not going to become unpure. I've never dabbled in that sort of thing before. He needs to hear this instruction three times from God. He cannot believe what God is showing him at this point. Now, There is some degree to which Peter should have been a little bit quicker to believe God here, that this food was okay for him to eat. Because Peter had spent three years with the Lord Jesus, and Jesus had gone out of his way to teach, actually, that this sort of thing was okay. If you go back and have a look at Mark chapter 7, you see Jesus teaching this lesson. Jesus said to his disciples that you are not defiled, that is, you're not made unclean, by what you put in your mouth. Jesus says, if you want to know what what makes you unclean, it's not what you put in your mouth. It's what comes out of your heart that makes a person unacceptable to God. Acceptableness to God has actually got nothing to do with externals. Jesus was very clear on that. Nothing to do with what you eat or don't eat. It's got to do with the condition of your heart and whether there is genuine trust there in Jesus or a lack of trust. That's what makes you acceptable to God. Now, For some reason, Peter seems to have missed that lesson. He's forgotten anyway. And so he's really confused at this point. Verse 17, later in the story, tells us Peter is still wondering about this, still trying to figure out the meaning of this vision that's come to him three times. And it's in that moment, as he's he's picking his brain about it, that the doorbell rings. And uh, it's the guys that Cornelius has sent down from Caesarea. It's as if, I think, at that point, God is trying to connect the dots for Peter as Peter's pondering this vision about the unclean food. What does it mean? Well, wake up, Peter. It's got to do with these guys who are on your doorstep. Come on. And and Peter, he gets time to keep pondering uh, the meaning of all of this because he heads off with Cornelius' men back to Caesarea to visit Cornelius. So fast forward the story a little bit. Peter's now arrived in Caesarea, verse 27, and he enters into Cornelius's house. And he finds out that actually Cornelius, he's pulled in a bit of a crowd. He's asked his neighbours and his friends and his family to come in. Peter thought he was walking into a bit of a one-to-one Bible reading situation, but it turns out he's now going to preach a sermon, right? This is every preacher's nightmare being put on the spot right here. But he preaches a cracker because look what comes out of his mouth, verse 28. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, did you, did you pick up on, on what's happened there? As Peter's been trying to make sense of this vision, he's figured out now the lesson that God wants to teach him. And did you notice the difference between what Peter says to Cornelius here and what God has said to to Peter just back in the vision. Compare verse 15 and verse 28. Verse 15, God says to Peter, do not call anything, anything, impure 
that God has made clean. But by verse 28, Peter's realised that God has shown him that he should not call anyone impure or unclean. This isn't about food. It's about people. Peter can see now that God is doing something that up until this point he could not really have imagined, that God is at work in this Gentile centurion's life, calling him to himself. Peter's figured out that in God's view, there's no such thing as a person who is clean and a person who is unclean, impure and pure. Or as he puts it there in verse 34, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I found it quite hard to put into words how monumental of a shift in understanding this is for Peter and for the Jewish Christians at this point. This really is, without exaggeration, a turning point in world history. As as Peter and then eventually, next chapter, the other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they come to realise that, yes, Gentiles too can be fully included into God's family. Peter has come to grips with the very thing that Jonah always struggled to believe, that God does not show favouritism. It doesn't matter, actually, whether you are Jewish or not. It's got no bearing on whether God will accept you. There, in fact, there, there are no distinctions that have any bearing on that question of whether God will accept you. Your skin colour, the language you speak, the accent you speak it with, your age, your gender, your income bracket, your education level, your marital status, those things may matter in life, but they have zero spiritual significance. God shows no partiality, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That is the lesson that this chapter is trying to teach. And so what I want to do with the rest of the time I've got is just to kind of camp out there with you, just to ponder that reality, try and get our heads around what a difference that makes. What I want to do is think through a few of the implications of that idea with you, three that I want to talk about today. Because God does not show favouritism, here is the first implication. It means that we do not need to fear rejection by God. If God doesn't show favouritism, we don't need to fear being rejected by God. Uh, maybe in your quieter and you know, more reflective moments, you may worry that you don't quite have the things that would make God partial to you. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. You might worry that you don't have the kind of background that God would you know, be interested in. But he, this is great news, friends. God is not partial to anyone like that. He, he's just lavish in his welcome. He doesn't play favourites or hold prejudices. He's an indiscriminate welcomer. Uh, one of my favourite stories in the whole Bible is in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus tells the parable of the heavenly banquet, the party that he's throwing. And, and in the story, the invitation is passed out to all people to come and sit with him and to be satisfied and fed at the feast of God. And it's not in the story, just those that kind of upper echelon of society, that upper rung who get invited. It's not just the people with the right religious pedigree who make it into the feast. No, it's the blind and the lame and the crippled, those who have experienced prejudice and who experienced being unfavourable their whole lives. Those are the ones who are invited in, who make it in. 
So I want to say, if you are sitting here today and you are thinking to yourself, well, I just don't think God could love me, you're wrong. Just look around you. In, in, uh, church, I love you, but we in this room are proof that you don't have to be the best kind of person to make it into the kingdom of God, right? We are hardly a team of world beaters in this church. We are proof of that, but if that doesn't convince you, then just take God at his word here. God doesn't have a type. God doesn't show favourites. There is no prejudice with God. So please don't fear that God will not accept you. That's the first implication. The second implication, I think, if God doesn't show favourites, what that means is, secondly, that no one gets special treatment from God. No one gets special treatment from God. This is kind of the flip side, if you like, of that first coin. Um, you, we did notice earlier, right, that Cornelius is a pretty exceptional guy. He's devout, he's humble, he's generous. He's just the sort of person, apart from being a Gentile, just the sort of person that you could imagine God being really you know, impressed by. But one of the things that is most surprising in this chapter is that when Peter meets him, he doesn't simply pat Cornelius on the back and say, Cornelius, you're a good bloke. Well done. You're clearly you know, acceptable to God as you are, so let's go and get you baptised. That's not what Peter does when he meets him. No, Peter has realised that just as Cornelius is not excluded by his Gentile ethnicity, neither is he saved by his virtuous life because God doesn't play favourites like that in either direction. No one gets special treatment. No one gets grandfathered into the kingdom of God simply for being good. God's acceptance of people hinges on one thing and one thing only. That is that person's response to the message of Jesus. And so Peter, after he's had this amazing world-shaping epiphany, what does he do with Cornelius? He preaches the gospel to him. <laughs> From verse 37, you can look at it later, he, he speaks about Jesus' life and his sin-atoning death and his resurrection and how Jesus, God has now raised Jesus from the grave and seated him to be the Lord and judge of everything. And then verse 43, he says, All the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, even for Cornelius, being a good, virtuous guy is not enough before God. If I can push that a little bit further and just provoke you a little bit today, I want to say believing in God is not enough. If by belief we simply mean that, oh, well, I believe there is a God and that he's a good God and that sort of thing, that's good that you believe that. I'm glad that you believe that. You know what Jesus says, though? He says even Satan believes that. That's not enough. God only accepts the person who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So please, if you're here today and you think you're going to get in because you're better than most, Please understand, you will get no special treatment from God. Just because you're in the 90th percentile, morally speaking, God will not make you his favourite. You must put your trust in Jesus. And then God will accept you, no matter who you are. No one gets special treatment from God. I, I think that that's something, actually, that even as Christians, we find that hard to believe. You know, over the years, I, I've had various people come and, and talk to me about people in their lives 
and asked me to help and to pray for, for people, family members, friends who are really struggling. They might say, you know, they're doing it tough. They've got some major hardship. You know, they've, they've trashed their relationships. Their life's in a mess. There's some substance abuse problem. They're having trouble with the law. They're in tons of debt. They really need Jesus. I've heard that conversation heaps of times. You know what I've not heard? I, I think it's almost never has anybody come to me and said, Mark, I, I need some help with, you know, somebody, my uncle, he, you know, would you pray for him? He's a really great guy. He, he kind of even believes in God and he prays sometimes. He, he's well respected in the community. He's a great family man. He's successful in business. He's generous to those in need. And he really needs Jesus. I don't hear that very often. And that tells me that maybe, maybe we don't actually believe that really, even really nice people, even really moral people, even the upstanding citizens, even religious people desperately need Jesus and the salvation that he brings. If we grasped that, that no one gets special treatment from God, then I have to think we would be a little bit more urgent in sharing the good news of Jesus, even with our nice, happy friends and neighbours. Something for us to consider. That's the second implication. The third and final implication I want us to think about today, that if, if God doesn't show favouritism... Thirdly, we must not show favouritism either. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? If the good news of Jesus dismantles all favouritism and prejudice, well then we, his people, must not show favouritism either, right? That is, in fact, a, a command that is given to us as, as followers of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Now, that's a pretty easy thing to kind of sit there and to, to nod and to take in and to agree with, but it's not so easy to live out in practice, is it? Because we are all people who are prone to prejudice and favoritism. That's a natural human instinct to prefer and to trust and to stick with people who are just like you. And we, friends, we have to be on guard against that. If, if we are to reflect the character of God, we've got to guard against that tendency. Now, it's worth noting that it took Peter actually quite a long time to, to come to grips with this. Because, yes, Jesus had said to Peter, remember, that he is to go and to make disciples of all nations. But what has Peter done up to this point? He, he hadn't left Israel he barely left Jerusalem. He certainly didn't want to go to the Gentiles at this point. His knee-jerk reaction in verse 14 when God tells him this is surely not, Lord. And in fact, there's evidence all the way throughout this passage of Peter's reluctance. Now, as much as Peter does seem to get the point here, actually, if you, if you fast forward a bit and read later in your Bible, in Galatians chapter 2, you read how the Apostle Paul had to pull Peter up on this. Peter had slipped back under pressure from Jewish people. He'd broken off from having fellowship with his Gentile friends. He'd stopped eating with them. Friends, if Peter can fall into this trap, surely we can too, right? I want to say as a church, we're not immune to showing favoritism. It is very easy just to kind of draw lines around groups of people that you're willing to relate to, willing to have fellowship with, 
And I want to say, usually what's going to happen is you're going to draw that line around people who look just like you. Isn't it true, as you come to church each Sunday, that there are people who you can't wait to talk to and people who you desperately try and avoid eye contact with? There are people whose word you will take no matter what they say, and there are some people whose word you will never take no matter what they say. That ought to be a warning for us. There is a danger here, friends, when we prefer to have fellowship with some people on the grounds of their ethnicity or their job or their age to the exclusion of others who are different to you. And so here is a question that I want you to reflect on. If God was challenging your prejudices, what would he put on the sheet that he lowered down from heaven for you? Who are the groups of people that you have no time for? Who are the groups of people that you excuse yourself from relating to and you go, surely not, Lord? Who would it be for you? Who would be on your sheet? Maybe you, you imagine what it would look like to peer over into that sheet and the first thing you see is a manly sea eagles jersey. Gee, it'd be nice if we didn't have to relate to those people, wouldn't it? No, no. <laughs> but seriously, who, who, would the, who would the groups of people be that you say, ah, oh, it's just it's not for me to relate to them? What would be in that sheet? Maybe it would be a pensioner's card to represent the elderly. Maybe as you looked in, you'd see a tattoo gun so that all those people who are inked up, you don't have to deal with them. Maybe in that sheet you'd find a wheelchair representing disabled people or a cardboard sign representing homeless people. Maybe in that sheet you'd see a foreign passport representing people who were born in a different country to you. Or maybe thinking more broadly beyond the bounds of our church, as you look in that sheet, you would see a Quran representing Muslims or a rainbow flag not for me to relate to. It's hard to face up to the reality that we might be people of prejudice, but it's no use pretending that we're immune to it. We need to reflect and we need to do the work to grow, to be more like our God who does not show favouritism. Now, I want to say, in brutal honesty, I find it really hard to talk about a topic like this at church because... Of all the things I could talk about, every single person in this room is going to have an opportunity to either have heard and taken on board what I've said today or to have ignored it in about 10 minutes' time when the service finishes. On the whole, I do think that as a church we do a pretty good job of, of welcoming and including people from all sorts of backgrounds. That's one of the things we certainly want to work at as a church. But I do wonder, actually, how easy it is for people who are not part of the majority culture to really kind of be part of things here at WBC. Now, there's always a range of people and a range of experiences, I get that, but I wonder if this isn't somewhere where we might be able to live out Jesus' blood-bought unity for us just a little bit better. So today, here's my challenge for you. I want to encourage you, friends, to do something about this today. To, to take one practical step, that's all I'm asking, one practical step, step of actually getting to know someone who's different to you. Now, it could be someone that you've met before, that's fine, I'm not expecting you to find somebody you've never heard of before, but take that first step of building a friendship with somebody who's outside of your usual network. Because when you do that, your life and our community life 
will be all the more richer for it and we will better reflect the character of God. Or better yet, if you're feeling brave, why not invite someone over for a meal, someone who's different from you, someone for whom there is a natural barrier between you. Now, I know it's kind of awkward to say that because now if anybody gets invited over morning tea, you're going to be thinking, <laughs> what sort of prejudice do you have against me? That's not my point. So mate, you don't have to do that one right now, but soon. We have an opportunity, friends, to demonstrate to the world that our gospel has the power to overcome natural barriers. We have the power in the way that we relate to one another to demonstrate to the world that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for people to see in our church? Favoritism and prejudice, they may be alive and well, but they are not before God. Let's make it so they're not in our church either. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, it is remarkable and staggering that you look at all people as equals before you, all equally in need of your grace, none given special preference. We are so grateful, Father that you sent Jesus and that he stands with open arms as the crucified and risen saviour, ready to accept any who would turn to him and find forgiveness of their sins. God, please would you help us not to fear rejection from you, but similarly help us not to be so self-confident that we think we'll get in on our own merits. Instead, Lord, help us to throw ourselves entirely on the Lord Jesus and to, to relate to one another just the way you relate to us, with open welcome, with indiscriminating love, with no favoritism or prejudice. We need your help in this, and we want to bring you glory in it. So please, by your spirit, enable us to do this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.